All right, this morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You guys can be seated. Amen. Thanks, Brandon. Well, it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning, and uh, nothing makes me feel at home uh, preaching here as the four empty tables in the front row here. So I really appreciate all those back row people. I hope, it, hope it, uh, the spirit falls in the back row just as heavily as it does in the front row. Um, so um, it's weird thing about like families, like every family has their own like, set of traditions and things that you, if you do more than once, all of a sudden it becomes a tradition in your kids' minds and you have to keep doing it over. Uh, one of our traditions as a family, I'm not even sure where it came from, is every March when the Oscars are on, we take, uh, get Chinese takeout and we watch whatever part of the Oscars is family friendly. So usually it's like five to 10 minutes of the Oscars that we get to watch. Uh, but a few years ago, there was a big uh, news headline that came out of the Oscars when Matthew McConaughey won Best Actor. He gave what's probably the most bizarre acceptance speech that anyone's ever heard because li- it sounded on first listen like he was saying that he is his own hero and that he looks up to himself in the future version of himself. It was a really weird speech. But I went back and listened to it this week again, and it's actually a really profound way of looking at life. Like, who would guess that anyone that an actor said would be profound? But I think Matthew, it's actually a profound thing. What he's saying in this acceptance speech is that he looks to who he wants to be 10 years from now. He hopes that he matures and grows into a, a more well-rounded adult and, and, and stronger man uh, in the future. And it's that aspirational goal of looking towards the future, hoping that he can become a better um, version of himself, that that's the thing that drives him to work hard. And I got, I got to thinking about that and realizing that that, um, that is a, something that we all should long for, right? Like, I, I look back on who I was 10 years ago with shock and embarrassment and disdain. And then I look back on me and my 27-year-old self, both look back on our 17-year-old self and realize that guy was even more of a tool and just all kinds of need for God's grace in his life. And I think if you, if you have that mindset, if you say, if I'm the same person I am today that I was 10 years ago, like, what, what a waste. Like, what have I been doing for this last decade of my life to end up in the exact same spot that I was? And so we want to have that same mentality moving forward where you say, by God's grace, I don't want to be the same person 10 years from now that I am today. Okay, and, and there's two ways we can approach this. One is the kind of the more Hollywood, Oprah-driven idea of it's a self-help project. Like, work really hard at being the best version of yourself, and, and if you believe in yourself, you will attain the things you're after. Uh, a more biblical, a more Christian, a more godly way of looking at this is saying, by God's grace, as God continues to work in me, my prayer is that I would cooperate with what his spirit is doing and leading me to, so that by his grace, 10 years from now, I'll be closer, I'm a more mature Christian, closer to the image of Christ that he has called us to be. 
Okay, and so, so that concept of saying, how has God worked in you this last 10 years is something that we want to talk about this morning. That how is God working in you right now? And if God is working in you to bring you into a more mature follower of Christ, then how can God also work through you? Because that's the thing about following Jesus. Whenever God works in us, he always does that work in order to work through us so that he can continue to to, uh, advance his kingdom, to see people far from Jesus loved and come to know him as their savior. All of those things are always tied together. And so this morning we have this awesome passage in the book of Acts where we're going to look at a bunch of different discipleship journeys, people that are on their progression trying to follow uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we get these little glimpses, these little snapshots of points in time, and we get to see how God is working in these followers of Christ, and then because of him working in them, how God also works through them. And so we're not going to use this. This is not uh, three examples to follow. This is not three heroes of the faith to try to emulate. What this is is three snapshots of the ways that God works, and it should open our hearts to be more attuned to how God is working in us and through us as individuals, but also corporately as a body of Christ. Does that, does that sound good this morning? Let's, let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll get into studying God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the privilege to be able to gather this morning and to study your word, to be able to celebrate uh, all the work that you have done in us and through us, both as individuals and as a church. And so I pray that as we open these pages, as we read these words, as we hear this story, I pray that it would be more than just a story, that it would be something that your Holy Spirit sovereignly uses in our hearts to show us the ways that we are called to follow you more closely and to love you more dearly. And so uh, with that goal in mind, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. We're going to go through about the middle of Acts chapter 19. But as we get going, we want to set some of the context because I love the thing about Acts being a history book. It's a historical book. The things we're reading about are not made up narratives. They're actually things that happened with real people. And so we have a map of the, uh, the first century. This is a map of Paul's second or third, excuse me, third missionary journey. So last week, if you were here, what happened is Paul planted the church in Corinth. He briefly stopped in Ephesus. Then he went to Antioch for a while. While, and then now he's working his way from Antioch back through the northern region of the Mediterranean Sea there, and he's going to end up back in Ephesus. But the reason there's those two circles there on Corinth and Ephesus is there was this uh, trade route, this sea route, that was uh, really easy for people to travel uh, back and forth from, and that's going to come into play as we see this story unfold this morning. And so let, let's pick it up uh, in verse, oh, I should also say that when Paul left Corinth, he brought with him this uh, couple that was helping him in his ministry, Priscilla was the wife and Aquila was the husband and he left them in Ephesus before he went to Antioch. And so when we pick it up this morning, uh, Priscilla and Aquila will still be in Ephesus as we get going. Let's, let's read verses 24 and following in Acts chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So this is the first time in the book of Acts that we get introduced to this amazing character named Apollos. He's actually like one of the superstars of the New Testament or of the early church. He was, he was from Alexandria. It was the intellectual capital of the Roman world, had the largest library in the ancient world. It says that he is, is, is he's smart. Uh, he is well-spoken. He's able to, to uh, articulate these ideas about who Jesus is 
clearly he's competent in the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus and all these different aspects of that. But it seems that he's a little bit off on some doctrines. Okay, he, he's, he's not quite clear or not quite accurate on some of the things that he is teaching. And that's where we see Priscilla and Aquila reemerge in this story. And what they do is this beautiful picture of discipleship. They pull him aside quietly and gently and they instruct him in some of the things that he had been slightly off base on. And because of that, he's able to be more articulate and more accurate as he proclaims the way of Jesus. Okay, and this is just such a beautiful picture of Apollos on his journey, someone who had the humility and the the teachability in order to be corrected and to more accurately proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Okay, and and so in Apollos' journey, we see one of these snapshots of how God works in us. Okay, we, we are not born naturally thinking and agreeing with the things that the Bible tells us about Jesus. We all need to be instructed. We all need to be shown the way of Jesus in order to follow him. And we all need the humility humility in order to receive what it is that we're being taught. And here's the interesting thing. Apollos, like I said, he's the rock star of the New Testament. He was the celebrity preacher. He was the super apostle that Paul was sometimes compared to. And for someone with that much gifting to also have that much humility is truly a rare and astonishing feat. Have you ever thought about that? Natural gifting and humility are usually inversely related. The more gifted we are, the harder it is to be humble. But because of God's work in Apollos, he had the character to receive what it was that he was being taught by Priscilla and Aquila. And the interesting thing here is that the humility that he's demonstrated is the fact that he was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, so now remember, Priscilla is the wife and Aquila is the husband. And so the fact that they mention her first seems to indicate that she took a leading role in this discipleship effort of Apollos. Now, that doesn't mean she was an elder in the church. She doesn't mean she was preaching or doing any of those other things. But what it does mean is that we, especially as, as men, if God brings a woman into our life to correct us and show us more accurately the way of Jesus, we need to be humble enough to learn that. We need to model what Apollos has here, where we, we, he, it's that couple together teaching him the way of Jesus. And he was humble enough to receive it. And so the interesting thing also is it's not real clear from here whether or not Apollos was a believer when this happened. Notice the way it says that he knew only the baptism of John. We're going to see in a little bit that someone who knew only the baptism of John actually wasn't a believer. And so it's not clear whether he already knew Jesus or or just knew about him. Uh, But no matter whether he was a believer or not, again, he was open and receptive to being taught more accurately the way of Jesus. And okay, and I love that the, the picture we see of his teachers here, of Priscilla and Aquila. Notice that they, they saw his fervency, they saw how articulate it was, they saw that he was teaching many things accurately, but they also discerned that something was off. And this is the important part, they loved the church and they loved Apollos enough to bring him aside gently and correct him on what he was teaching incorrectly. Okay, they they didn't talk behind his back. They didn't say, boy, I'd watch out for that Apollos guy. He's a little bit off on some things. You know, he's a little bit too too, uh, full of himself possibly. He doesn't understand things accurately. I would watch out for that guy. Instead, they love him enough to say, you're doing great work, but you're a little off. Let's correct what you're doing. And and then the word that that, um, Luke uses in this passage is that they took him aside. Okay, and that word took aside is really interesting because what we're trying to do every week when we gather here is, is quote Romans 15, 7. It says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Rachel just led us in that a second ago. And that word welcome is the same word as take aside. And so the, the posture and the heart, uh, the heart approach that Priscilla and Aquila had towards Apollos is the exact same posture that Jesus has towards us when he welcomes us into his family. 
He's, he's not harsh. He's not condescending. He's not condemning. He's not rubbing our nose in our mistakes. He's saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that same heart posture is what Priscilla and Aquila modeled. So think about the work that God had already done in Priscilla and Aquila to get them to that place where when they came, it came time to correct Apollos, they didn't do it in a condescending or condemning or arrogant way, putting him in his place. Instead, they did it in the same way that Jesus deals with us, gently and kindly welcoming us um, as, as God's grace has been shown to us. And you just think about this, what a beautiful picture of what we pray our church is for one another. Okay, the reason we say every time when we do our greeting, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, is we want that to be the heart posture of our church. We don't want people to be, to be going after one another, trying to either harshly correct them or, or move their way up the social ladder by doing things. We want to be open to everyone and saying we're going to have this gentle heart posture that says I'm going to pursue you in the exact same way that Jesus pursues us. And so I think that th- this picture is actually a, a great uh, challenge for us as a church. At our tables, our discussion tables, when you hear something that is incorrect according to your understanding of the Bible, how do you respond to that comment? Do do you put someone down in a harsh way? Do you show them that you know more Bible, that you have more knowledge and degrees and those things? Or do you take them aside and gently correct them the way that God deals with us? That's the kind of thing we want to be as a church, a place that is, is, is living out. The work that God has done in us makes us, when we interact with one another, have the same approach that Jesus has with us. And when we work, God works in us like that, it always leads to being worked through. God always works in us in order to work through us. Let's see what happens next in verse 27. And when he wished, when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, that'd be where Corinth is at, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, so so remember what we said about Apollos. This dude is the superstar of the early church. Uh, Martin Luther actually thinks, makes a good argument that Apollos might have been the author of the book of Hebrews. Okay, like this guy was well-spoken, articulate. It's all the things going on. He is the up-and-coming star in the church of Ephesus, and he feels led by the Holy Spirit to move on to Corinth to do some discipleship there. And imagine the generosity and the care of the church in Ephesus to say, not only are we going to pray over you and send you out, we're going to send you with a letter of recommendation, hoping that God does the same work through you in Corinth that he has been doing here. Can you imagine sending off a superstar like that to another church to go make disciples there? Like that, that, that kind of open-handedness is what says, I care more about the kingdom of God expanding than I do about whether or not we have a superstar in our midst when we're gathering on a Sunday morning, those kinds of things. So that's why one of our priorities as a church is we want to be kingdom multiplying. So when we say by kingdom multiplying, we mean we want to give of ourselves for the glory of Jesus beyond our local church setting. Yeah, that, that's why when we give church to the church uh, finances, we take 15% of that to fund other missionaries and church plants outside of our walls. We want to have that same posture that, Priscilla, or that the church in Ephesus had of saying, it's more about the kingdom than it is about me. Okay, and that same posture is what we see Paul model when he writes the letter back to the church in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about this same Apollos guy because the church in Corinth had kind of made this celebrity struggle. Do you follow Paul or do you follow Apollos? And what Paul says is, it's beautiful. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he doesn't even say who is Apollos or who is Paul. He depersonalizes them saying that they are just instruments or tools in Jesus' hands. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted Apollo's water, but God gave the growth. So then neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That same humility that Apollos modeled, Paul models in this passage, and all true missionaries and followers of Christ who care about the glory of Jesus have that approach that says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus working in me so that he can work through me for the glory of God with people who don't yet know him as their Savior. That's what we see. And so, but now, in, in the, as verse, uh, chapter 19 continues, we see Paul get reintroduced to this story. Let's look at 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, that's where we saw on the map how he ended up from the north, and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And so, so what happens in this story is Paul, when he arrives at Ephesus, he meets 12 dudes who are calling themselves disciples. And so he's, he's investigating to see what they mean by labeling themselves disciples. And this is one of those passages that our, um, our more Pentecostal brothers and sisters use to try to say that sometimes there's a second blessing where you can be a follower of Christ and not have the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's one interpretation you can take of this passage. What I like to think is, is happening here, what I think is the, a more accurate interpretation, is that these people, these men, are calling themselves disciples, but they're using the word in a different way or an incorrect way than the way Paul is using the word disciples. Okay, so if you follow the news right now, you know there's a big deal about people who call themselves Republicans, and there's a question of are they Republicans or are they Republicans in name only? Have you guys heard that? And so they, that person is called a rhino. I don't, this is a little bit of, this is a little bit of pop culture uh, political uh, education for you all if you're not familiar with that. But what I think is happening here is these people are disciples, but they're disciples in name only. Okay, so they're, they're dinos. They're, they're not actual followers of Christ. They have this, wait, that's the joke that we actually laugh at today, the dino one? <laughs> Man, okay, I need to make note of that. Stick with the dino joke, right? Yeah. But what's happening is, is they were disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, so, so John the Baptist was this hugely influential figure in the ancient world. And so they had somehow interacted with him in Jerusalem. They'd been baptized by John. They were calling themselves disciples, but they meant they were followers of John. And apparently they were such ill-informed followers of John, they didn't actually listen to what John taught. Because John taught all the time about the Holy Spirit. John taught about Jesus who would come after him, how he would be the Messiah. He was the one pointing to them. And so these people had some kind of experience, but they didn't even hear about what God had actually done. There's this interesting story about a a group of settlers in the 1790s who went uh, west to Kentucky. That was the western frontier right after the, the Revolutionary War. And they met another group of settlers who'd been out there for 30 years. And they asked them, you know, what do you think about this new republic that we're a part of? You know, the Revolutionary War, it's a big deal, right? King George is gone. And these settlers who'd been out in the, the wilderness of Kentucky for 30 years, they're like, we have never even heard of this revolution. We didn't know that there was a United States of America. We had no idea this was happening. That's the same kind of posture that's happening here with these guys. They're like, we haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. We don't know who Jesus is. All we know is that John said, get baptized, and so we did it. And we haven't actually been following Jesus. So, when, so what happens is, is Paul understands that, that they're calling themselves disciples, but they've never actually met Jesus. Okay, and so when we talk about the work that God does in you, that work in you begins with a life being transformed by the gospel. 
Okay, Jesus' work in you, the first step is always him removing your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. It's him moving you from a child of darkness into a child of light. It's him doing all of those things that Brandon read in Ephesians 1 through 10 before we got started this morning. It's how by the grace of God, we are drawn to Jesus' side and we're moved from a servant of Satan to a child of God. Okay, that's the kind of transformation that begins and that's the transformation that these disciples of John had not yet had, but... In a similar way to Apollos, they were humble enough and uh, spiritually impoverished enough to realize they needed the truth. And so when Paul presented the gospel, when he said John pointed to Jesus, they responded in humility and repentance. They believed in Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus instead of in the name of John. And then the Holy Spirit does what he does all over Acts. He validates their conversion and says, yes, these men are a part of the true church. And I'm going to demonstrate that by them speaking in tongues in the exact same way that the disciples spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He's saying these people are now officially members of the church. And so, and so what happens is, is God is working through Paul here and allowing Paul to have the discernment to realize what these 12 so-called disciples actually need in this moment. And so, so like I said a little bit ago, that, that last section with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, I think that's something God has for us. Are we going to be a church that loves one another enough to speak the truth? Are we going to be a church that's humble enough to receive the truth when it is spoken to us? This passage here with these 12 dinos, I think what's happening is this passage is for our community. Okay, there are so many people in El Paso County who consider themselves Christians. They would call themselves disciples, but they've never actually met Jesus. Okay, they had a religious experience at one time, but they never surrendered their heart to him. Okay, they grew up in a Christian home, but they never actually followed Jesus as their savior. I think that's a lot of what happens on our streets here in Falcon and Colorado Springs and in Peyton. Okay, and so we need to have the same kind of discernment as Paul to be able to ask the right questions and hear what is it that God is doing in these people's lives. I, I remember I, a few years ago, I invited our neighbor to church and he told me, he's like, oh, that's okay, we, we already have a church. And I was like, oh, hey, praise God, that's awesome. We love, it's all about Team Jesus. It's not about our individual church. So uh, where do you go? He says, well, I go, I go to the church off of uh, Woodman Road there. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, I know the pastors of both those churches. They're both great churches. Is it, do you go to Woodman Valley or Mountain Springs? Which, which church is it? And he goes, um, I go to the church near the gas station. And I think, if you don't know the name of your church, I'm betting you don't actually go <laughs> to that church, right? Uh, so that is like some really good detective work on my part, kind of discerning who it is, what it is that God is doing. But those kinds of things like, Everyone on our street, the vast majority of people on our street are going to say they are, they are Christians. They're going to check that box on a survey. But our job is to love them enough and to know them well enough to ask the right questions to say, um, what do you mean by a Christian? Do you mean that you've surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you mean that you've recognized your sin, that you've repented of living apart from him and you've asked him to be your savior and to be Lord of your life and to follow him? Uh, have, you, have you been baptized? Have you made that declaration of faith in him? Those kinds of things are what we need to ask to figure out how we can have the same kind of work in us and through us that Paul demonstrates here. As he keeps going, we see more examples of that work of Jesus through Paul. So uh, verse 8 and, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Again, this is just like, we've seen this probably 20 times so far in the book of Acts where Paul shows up in a synagogue, he gets kicked out of the synagogue, and so he goes somewhere next door in order to continue to preach the gospel. This time he ends up in this uh, lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus, which actually is the Latin word for tyrant, which if you're, if you're looking for the name of like, if you're one of you kids, if you're looking for the name of your school, the Hall of the Tyrant is probably a good name for your school. But what, um, what happens here, um, oh, and another thing is, the Hall of Tyrannus was a lecture hall. It's probably a school in the city of Ephesus. And, and notice what Paul is doing. He's transforming this school where someone lectures during the week. He's transforming that to a place to talk about Jesus and to make disciples and to worship God for who he is. Who does that remind you of, huh, guys? Like, I, I love the fact that we are in meeting in a school like this and transforming it from an elementary school to Sunday mornings that's a house of worship. This is not something new that we invented. This is something that goes back. We, we have a biblical example of someone turning a school into a house of worship. I found that profoundly encouraging this morning as we're setting up the gym for church today. Uh, but the one thing I want to zero in on this passage is note in verse 10 how it says, he did this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It doesn't say that everyone responded Responded to the word of the Lord, but he was faithful to proclaim it so that if you lived in Asia, you at least heard of the gospel. You at least knew the good news of who Jesus is. And so, so thinking about that, I was reading this passage with Kelly this week as I was preparing the sermon, and, and she's like, boy, he did that in two years? We, we, we've been at it for nine years here in Falcon. Paul was able to evangelize all of Asia in two years. We've been here nine years. How, how are we doing? And I corrected her. I was like, this is not the continent of Asia. This is the province of Asia. It's the Roman colony. And she's like, okay, how are we doing at the province of Falcon <laughs> and proclaiming the gospel instead of the, the whole continent? And the, the question, though, is a good one, I think. How long have you lived in your current home? How long have you lived in that street? And, and is it safe to say that everyone on your street has heard the word of the Lord? Uh, that is not true on our street. Like, I feel convicted this morning and this uh, week as I was preparing this, thinking about that. How many of my neighbors would say, Jesus, like I, I, I've heard of Jesus, but I've never had the gospel actually explained to me. Okay, and so, so as we continue to live out our discipleship in an area, the reason we need God to work in us is because when God works in us, he will tear down a lot of those things that hinder our evangelism, like fear of man or worry about whether or not we have the right answers or busyness that keeps us from knowing our neighbors. Some of those things, when God works in us, that opens the door for him to work through us so that all the residents of Falcon can hear the word of the Lord. That's our prayer. God always works in you so that he can then work through you from there. So let's keep going as Paul continues to uh, evangelize in the city of Ephesus. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is a really interesting, uh, something we need to talk about is our current reality and also the ancient city of Ephesus. So what we know from archaeology about the ancient city of Ephesus is of all the ancient world, they were the city that was most obsessed with magic. Okay, they, they loved the concepts of ma- uh, magical things. They had all these amulets and books that described how magical incantations would work. So they, they were very in tuned to the supernatural. Okay? And so because of that, a lot of what's happening here, uh, I think, is, is God dealing with the cultural idols of the city of Ephesus. Okay, that's the ancient situation. The present reality is this stuff still happens. 
Okay, like God has not ceased to interact with our world in miraculous ways. Okay, God can and does do miracles all the time. And so the question is not, are we the people that have this supernatural power to have a handkerchief touch us and then go heal someone? Right, that, that's what you mail away checks for to people on TV who promise you instant healing through charlatan moves like that. But we can see that through this is that the spiritual realm is something that the Bible talks about from cover to cover, and we as Americans are often not as aware of the fact that there is angels and demons and the spiritual realm that God is working uh, and Satan, the enemy, is battling what God is doing. But the thing we want to keep talking about here this morning is it's God's work in you so that he can work through you. And notice who it says these miracles are being done by. It doesn't say it's, it's Paul that's doing them. It says in verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay, God was working through Paul. It wasn't that Paul was so special that if he wiped his brow with a rag that that all of a sudden had healing powers. It's that God was wanting to tear down these cultural idols of the city of Ephesus and he was powerful enough to do that and he is still powerful enough to take down the idols that exist in our current setting. Okay, and, and, and there's something about this situation that is abnormal, right? Because Luke has traveled with Paul. He's seen all kinds of miracles. But even from Luke's perspective, he labels these extraordinary miracles. He says th- this is something out of the ordinary. This was not the norm even in the Apostle Paul's life. But the, the thing we take away from there is, is God can and God still does do miracles, And and if we're worshiping a God who is powerful enough to tear down these cultural idols in the city of Ephesus, then what is God able to do in the cultural idols in our city? He is also more powerful than those. It's not just what's happening here in the ancient world. Let's keep going. This is where it gets really interesting. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's like the ancient, like the demons are saying, like, new, new phone, who dis? Like, I'm not sure who we're talking to here. And listen to what happens, verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them, leaped on all seven of them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, that is a fight they got into. I, I heard uh, Matt Chandler, the president of Acts 29, preach on this passage, and he said, I'm not much of an expert in fights, but I think the rule is if you enter a fight with pants and you leave the fight with no pants, I think it's safe to say you lost that fight, right? <laughs> That's what happened here to them this morning. And so what's happening, what we see for these people, again, I said there's three different scenes we're going to look at, right? We, we saw the scene of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, the scene of the seven or the 12 disciples in name only uh, that Paul ministered to. And now this is the third and final scene of this passage where we see a group of seven Jewish exorcists who are trying to use the name of Jesus that Paul preaches for their own selfish gain. Okay, and what we see here is that God's work in you Um, God will not work through you until he has worked in you in the first place. What these seven men are hoping is that they can get some secondhand power of Jesus, some, some tangential power, hoping that if they just say the right incantation, that all of a sudden they will have the exact same influence and uh, persuasion and power over demons that the apostle Paul has. And, And what this passage is showing us is that kind of pride of saying, I can take the name of Jesus into my own hands and I can wield him like a weapon for my own gain. That kind of pride is not the heart posture that Jesus works through. Okay, these people did not know Jesus. They did not have a personal relationship with him. When they talk about Jesus, they're saying, Paul's Jesus 
is the one who's powerful. They didn't say my Jesus. They didn't say, I, I command you in the name of Jesus whom I serve and worship and follow. They were trying to get secondhand power through Paul, and that kind of work never works. Yeah, that kind of pride is not the kind of posture that God works through. And so when you look at our own day and age and you see a lot of people that have left the Christian faith, a lot of uh, people that maybe grew up in Christian homes but have rejected it later on, what we see, I think, a lot of times is that many of those men and women are trying to get secondhand power from Jesus. They've never actually come to know him. They're trying to say, in the name of Jesus, whom my parents serve, I hope that God does this. And the demons are saying, I, I've heard of your parents. I know Jesus, but, but who are you? Okay, and what we see from this is that, that, that if we're going to reject Christianity, uh, we need to make sure that we're, we're rejecting the Christianity that we have been following, not something that someone else has, has tried. Okay, G.K. Chesterton has this awesome quote where he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And so the, the, the seven sons of Sceva, they did not try the Christian ideal. They tried to use the Christian ideal, and because of that, they found it wanting because they were not actually following Jesus. But, but look what happens to the genuine followers of Christ when they see this incident take place. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so what happens is notice that the people that are burning these books, these magical incantation, amulet books, all those things, the people that are doing that are believers. It doesn't say that they're the disciples in name only. It says that they are followers of Christ. But when they see the kind of power that works through Paul and the genuine work of the Holy Spirit, they realize that they had been holding off part of their life and keeping it from Jesus, and they were only following Jesus halfway. They, they, they had cordoned off part of their heart. And so when Jesus works in you, he wants to work in all of you. Every nook and cranny of your heart is a part of the, your life that Jesus has lordship over and that Jesus desires to serve him. And so, so what happens is, is these people, they, they, they realize that they have not been following Jesus wholeheartedly. They've been keeping some of their old life on the side, hoping that they can have some magic arts and they can have Jesus. And when they realize that Jesus has all the power alone, they're like, why would we need to waste our time with any of those things that distract us from who Jesus is? And so they completely confess their sin. They repent of it. Re repentance and confession is for Christians too. It's not just for when you become a follower of Christ. It is the ongoing act of a follower of Christ. Uh, Martin Luther, his first thesis said, when the Lord Jesus says repent, he bids that all of life be an act of repentance. Okay, that's what these people are modeling. And their repentance, their confession, has tangible and costly results. I, I love that about this. Genuine confession always costs you something. And if you repent or you confess and it does not cost you anything, it might be that you haven't actually confessed and repented of what you need to. Because notice it says they burned all these books. And it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. If you do the math, like that's a one day's wage. This is a, they, they had a bonfire that $5 million worth of books was being burned in the middle of the street. Okay, they were willing to give up $5 million worth of assets in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. 
Okay, that's the kind of lifestyle of repentance that says I'm willing for this to cost me something because I'm so devoted and desirous of Jesus working in me that I don't want to cling to anything that would get in the way of that. So, so think about some of the modern applications of this that there could be. The, uh, a guy who's addicted to pornography is willing to burn his smartphone rather than have that struggle continue to be a thing in his life. Okay, someone who's addicted to social media is willing to cancel their accounts and burn their smartphone rather than have that continue to have a hold over them. Okay, parents who have made their, their children's activities, their entire identity, are willing to pull their kids out of extracurriculars so that it's not a barrier to Jesus anymore. People who are, are, are workaholics who struggle with giving too much of their lives to their jobs, they're willing to change careers and, and give away their share of the business in order to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. People who are, are consumed with what other people think about them find their need to turn away the approval of other people in order to follow Jesus. People who are in the military realize that rather than building their career and looking for that next promotion, they turn down those resume builders so that their identity in Christ will be secure because that's always more important than the rank on their shoulder. Okay, all of these kinds of things, these are just examples that I'm spitballing off the top of my head here, okay? These are not something, that, this is not a word from the Lord to each of us here, okay? But what it is is a challenge for each of us saying, what in my life is hindering the work of Jesus in me? And what do I need to confess and burn and turn from in order to be more open to God working in me and through me? Well, what is the thing that I'm clinging to, hoping I can have my little magic practice on the side and have Jesus that I need to turn away from and follow him wholeheartedly? That's the kind of stuff that I think we want to see as a church. Okay, and, and, and as you evaluate the, the revivals, I mean, th- what happens here in Ephesus is a revival, right? People are confessing their sin, they're coming to Jesus, they're burning, they're giving up all their assets. Throughout the history of the church, when revivals happen, it always begins with the confession of sin, it always begins with turning from other idols and things that we look to for our identity and turning towards Jesus, realizing that he alone is the one that actually is what we long for. And so you put all three of these pictures together. You see Apollos with Priscilla and Aquila. You see the, the 12 disciples in name only. And then you see the seven sons of Sceva. And what we see with each three of these scenes, the commonality, the thread that runs between all of them, is they had a position where they thought they were in the right spot. But then they were, by God's grace, confronted with the truth, and they realized that they were standing on the wrong ground, that they had built their life on a poor foundation, and they needed an adjustment. So Apollos is confronted by the grace of God through Priscilla and Aquila, and he follows Jesus with more accurate understanding. Okay, the the, the 12 disciples in name only are confronted by the Apostle Paul, and they hear who Jesus is, and they follow him and him alone with their whole hearts. Uh, even the seven sons of Sceva, they're confronted by the grace of God through the demon beating the pants off of them, right? Like God is showing them that they are not in the spot they need to be. And so the question of whether or not they learn from those incidents all comes back to, are their hearts spiritually poor enough to realize they need hope? Are are, are they humble enough to learn from someone else? That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. That poor in spirit, that impoverished spirit says, I know that left to myself, I'm in a world of hurt. And it's it's only an external solution. It's only by looking to Jesus and his grace that I can find any hope. Okay, that, that's that repentance that turns towards Jesus and then opens the door for him to work in us so that he can work through us. And, and once God begins that work in us, think back to the beginning, that, that image of who do you want to be 10 years from now? Okay, if you're relying on your own strength, that is the kind of pride that the, the seven sons of Sceva had. But if you look to who you want to be in 10 years and you rely on the grace of God, 
That's the kind of thing that gives us hope to know that God will work that in us. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, our hope is not our own work. Our hope is God's work in us so that God can work through us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage that shows us uh, such a beautiful picture of of your sovereignty, of your power, of your love, of your grace, uh, your kindness, uh, the fact that you love us enough to confront us when we are wrong, when we're struggling, when we're incorrect. I pray that you would uh, supernaturally give us those humble hearts, that humble posture to recognize that we need more of you. We don't need more of our own strength or more of our own self-reliance. We need more of your grace working in us and working through us. So as we turn to these tables, I pray that we would uh, pull each other aside gently, that we would welcome one another as you have welcomed us, and that these discussions would be for the glory of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's, uh, we're going to turn to our discussion tables now. And the reason we do this, if you're new here, uh, we sit at tables so that after we process a passage of Scripture together, we can uh, talk to one another and we can, like I said, gently correct and encourage and admonish one another. So here's some questions to get us started. Uh, if you are new, just know that nothing you say, no one's going to look down on you. This is a safe place. You can, can say whatever you feel comfortable sharing. First question is, as you reflect on the past few months, how has Jesus worked in you and how has Jesus worked through you? This is one of those phrases, those questions we want to be very familiar to us as members of the Missio Dei here. These, these thoughts uh, being discerning of what God is doing in us and through us. Secondly, which of the discipleship journeys that we study today most connects with you? Those three different snapshots that we saw and why does it connect with you? And then lastly, why is the combination of gifting and humility like we saw in Apollos, why is that combination so rare And then more personally, how can each of us cultivate humility in our own lives moving forward? So we'll do that for about 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship and communion. You know, one of the verses that came to my mind as Colbert was preaching was Mark 115, repent and believe. It's such a simple command that we're instructed to do, and trying to articulate through that of like, God, what do I need to repent of? What roots need to uproot in my life so that I can see you more clearly, right? And there's also that parable that Jesus instructs of the man that goes after the the buried treasure. He does something completely radical of selling everything in his life because he knows the treasure that he's holding. So those things that God's maybe trying to take up from your life, we shouldn't always look at those as these harsh realities of like, oh, I can't have fun in this way or we can't do sports this way or I need not pursue that promotion Maybe it's just, God, how, how can I see you working in this and changing my life to glorify you? Like, what, what are you trying to do in my life so that I can see you as my ultimate treasure, running after you to get that ultimate treasure? You know, there's a couple psalmists in there that when, when they're crying out to God, they're, they're saying, I don't feel you anymore. Draw near to me. Are we running to God as an ATM machine trying to fix what we're currently going through or are we running to him because we're not feeling his presence? We're, he's, he's not drawing near to us, and we're not drawing near to him. And so some of those things of repenting and believing is just as simple as that of, of saying, God, I don't, I don't know what this season of life has for me. I don't know where I need to repent, or this is actually where I need to repent, and he's clearly revealed that to you, right? And so as we go to the table here today, we're going to go through the prayer of confession um, and some of that is, is going to be confessing of our sins. But then some of that also, we do practice open communion here at Missio Day. 
And so what that means is if you have leaned into Jesus and accepted him as your eternal savior, the only way to God through faith, um, then we invite you to this table. If you haven't um, accepted that yet, I'll be underneath the, the, the basketball coop over here with my wife. We would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you through that um, of how, how to and what that means to accept Christ into your life. Uh, but let's stand up real quick. Uh, we're going to go through the prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. The glory of your name. Amen. Let's worship.